Well, allow me to also say good morning to each one of you and Merry Christmas. I also offer my greetings to anyone joining us online. Thank you for tuning in to join, join with us. Um, before we dive into the sermon this morning, I have a scripture reading I want to read from Isaiah 53. You'll hear this again at our Christmas Eve service on Friday if you're able to make it out at 7 p.m. But you'll hear from the sermon today that the, the joy that we have at Christmas only makes sense when it is viewed from a, kind of top-down view where we know all that comes along with the incarnation of Christ. So here, Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is God's word. I want to add to Tony's thankfulness for everyone involved in our service today, our sound people and visual people and people who set up and keep the sanctuary so nice, and particularly for our worship team, I've always loved true Christmas music. And when I say true Christmas music, I mean Christmas music that stays true to the meaning and the real joy of the Christmas season, that being the incarnation of Christ. And I hope all of you have enjoyed the 
Christmas season you've had so far. I love slowly starting to see bits and pieces of our family that have gone to far-flung places start to return to their nests, and it's always fun to kind of see the families kind of rejoin together. It's hard to believe for me that it's now T-minus six days until Christmas morning, and I also want to, again, plug that Christmas Eve service that we have on Friday. It'll be at 7 p.m., and what better way to remind ourselves of why we are celebrating Christmas than to come together with your body of church family and kick it off together as, as a family. So this morning we will be working on part two of three of our Christmas mini-series looking at the opening words of each of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. For anyone that missed part one from the Gospel of Matthew, I encourage you, feel free to check it out on our church website or on YouTube and to get yourself up to speed. Um, I say that particularly because I am going to skate over a few things from this morning's passage since we dealt with them last week. Specifically, the importance of Jesus being referred to by that name and title combination of Jesus Christ. Long story short, from last week, Jesus Christ, from the Greek, translates to Yahweh is salvation, the anointed one. For the rest of the backstory, you're going to have to watch last week's sermon. But this week, we're going to be looking at the first words of the Gospel of Mark. Mark 1.1. So, before we get to that, why don't we pray? Our Lord and our Heavenly Father, you have gathered us together this morning to celebrate what you have done, both in the recent weeks and months and across all time. You have gathered us together that we might honor and glorify you. We thank you that in doing so, we would be most satisfied and most overjoyed to participate in that activity. Lord, I pray for our congregation as we celebrate Christmas and what have you, life still goes on. There is still joys and struggles, pain and happiness that we all are experiencing. Lord, we are keenly aware of the funeral that went on in our community yesterday. The loss of Zaman has rippled through our community. God, we pray for the Pelic and the Bleakley families as they wrestle with this loss that is beyond comprehension. And for all of the other families and friends and all who were connected to, to Zaven, and we ask that you would bring peace and hope in the midst of such an unrestful and dark time that we would be able to see the, the light that you have shone through Christ. Think of those who are struggling with health issues over this time. We thank you that our brother Ralph has come through his surgery relatively well, and we pray that you would continue to, to bring him healing. We thank you for the work that you've done through the, the medical staff and 
multiple different hospitals and ambulances and whatever else. And Lord, we thank you that we live in a country where we have access to such. And Lord, that none of what these medical professionals do can be effective outside of your will. So we thank you that you have caused these things to be effective. And Lord, any others who are suffering from health issues, we just ask that you would bring healing one way or another and trust that in all of our, our struggles that you are still good. We thank you that we can trust that no matter what we are going through. God, as families gather and time is spent, we ask that you would give safety to those who are on the roads coming to join family or going to join family. And also, as families gather, that can cause friction and struggle sometime, and we pray that you would bring peace to relationships. And that as we gather with our loved ones, that issues that have long since passed would get resolved and dealt with and that we might come out in better relationship with each other and less focused on that and more focused on you. God, as we come to worship you in your word, we ask that you would open it to our hearts and reveal it to us in a way that you might set to work upon us through it. We would leave here changed from your gospel and your good news. We trust all these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark 1.1 The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Last week we focused more on the name and title of Jesus as well as his identification as the son of David and the son of Abraham. This week we're going to look at what it means when Mark calls this the gospel. And perhaps more importantly, what it means when he calls Jesus the son of God. One thing I've always loved about the gospels, and I know I've talked about it before, is the idea that each one of these records is totally reflective of the men who wrote them. All inspired by the Spirit, but each is still personally influenced by the writers. Matthew's Gospel is overtly Jewish in how it's composed and how it's written, but Mark's Gospel is the polar opposite. Mark references the Old Testament less than half as much as Matthew does. Mark even sets to work explaining certain Jewish customs to his readers in his gospel. In Mark 7, he's talking to these Pharisees, and they're gathering with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem. They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And then Mark parenthetically explains what's going on here. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. There are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So all that to say, Mark's audience is decidedly 
Gentile. There's some good, F, good, uh, good evidence to suggest that it was written in Rome. And I bring this up because it plays into the meaning of the first important word that we're looking at this morning, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Today, the word gospel provides no real pause for people in our culture. Particularly in the Christianized West, it's universally understood as a religious term. It refers to truth. That's why we have stuff like the gospel truth. doesn't matter whether you're a believer or not. You, you understand what it's go, what's going on when you say the gospel truth. But narrowing it down to particularly Christian culture, the first kind of thought that comes with gospel is the first four books of the New Testament. You've got the Gospels, accounts of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. But for Mark, these weren't yet a literary genre. If you said Gospel, that they wouldn't have gone, oh yeah, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those are the four Gospels. There's even an argument to be made that Mark may have been the first of the Gospels written. So Mark's not referring to a biblical genre here when he talks about the Gospel. And if not a genre, then maybe we take another Christian understanding of the gospel. That is, most of us can identify gospel means good news. It's getting closer to the intended meaning for sure, but we have to put ourselves in the shoes of the people who are hearing and reading this. What kind of good news is this? The word used for gospel already has some huge connotations for those readers that would have been hearing it from Mark, specifically to these Greco-Roman Gentiles. It is a word that meant good news, but it was a very specific kind of good news. Usually it referred to either some sort of major military victory on the battlefield, or more commonly at the time, good news regarding the emperor. Whether it was the birth of an emperor's heir or an ascension to the throne or a birthday. You have all sorts of good news of the emperor that was supposed to just be hailed and shared throughout the land. But an interesting thing is it was almost always used in the plural, in the Greco-Roman use. A piece of good news among other good news. But the way it's used here is decidedly singular. There is good news, and then there is the good news. I love the juxtaposition here in Mark's use of good news. He's speaking to these Greeks and Romans who are used to kind of the periodic proclamations of how this or that emperor or emperor's family member have done or accomplished something. Flattering words with exaggerated praise. I had to read an example from the birthday of the Emperor Augustus, which was September 23rd, and how that would now mark the beginning of the year when persons assume civil office. This is an idea of the, the gospel that these people would have been used to. It is a day which we may justly count as equivalent to the beginning of everything. If not in itself and in its own nature, at any rate, in the benefits it brings, 
insomuch as it has restored the shape of everything that was failing and turning into misfortune, and has given a new look to the universe at a time when it would gladly have welcomed destruction if Caesar had not been born to be the common blessing of all men. This kind of pompous, puffed-up word service would have been commonplace in a culture that often worshipped these emperors as demigods. There was an emperor cult that actually viewed them as gods. But you contrast that kind of wordplay with a new kind of good news, the kind that is worth hearing. If you're hearing every few months how great it is that some emperor or some emperor's family member did something amazing, you kind of start to go, okay, get the announcement over with. But then all of a sudden there is a new kind of good news. Dr. David Garland states it well. Christianity doesn't offer a series of gospels which, with each succeeding ruler, but only one, the gospel. The benefits are universal and bestowed on everyone. They are offered to the outcast, the sinner, and the poor, Jew and Gentile alike, not just the privileged few. This story is truly good news for the entire world. This new good news is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I went into detail last week about the importance of that name and title being used. It's not super common throughout the gospels. So I won't go into that today, but pay attention to the fact that since gospel wasn't a genre yet, this literally is just the good news of Jesus Christ, this proclamation of Jesus Christ. And the beauty is that Jesus is both the source and the content of the gospel. Matthew 4.23 says, Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Jesus quite clearly preached the gospel. But the gospel that he preached was his own story. He was the gospel. He was the substance of the good news prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah 52. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice together and they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into all the ends of the earth. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Brings us to the second piece of our passage. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Matthew touted Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. But Mark focuses his lens even narrower. And honestly, his largely non-Jewish audience probably wouldn't have taken much stock out of the ancient Israelite prophecies. But to hear that Jesus was indeed the son of God would certainly have gotten their attention. 
None of the Gospels shy away from the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. All four Gospels record the proclamation of Jesus' sonship at the baptism of Christ. All the synoptics record a similar identification in the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain before Peter, James, and John. Matthew records Peter answering Christ, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then both the tempter himself and various unclean spirits throughout the Gospels are very quick to recognize Jesus as the Son of God. Mark, however, bookends his account with the sonship of Christ. You have this in Mark 1.1, and then immediately upon the crucifixion of Christ, his is the only gospel to count the record of the centurion's words in chapter 15. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Being so heavy on this, why does it matter that Jesus is the Son of God? First and foremost, if Jesus was not the Son, then he is not God. We believe that in the Trinity, there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. There is nothing and no one else besides God that is truly eternal, from eternity past to eternity future. And if Jesus is not the Son of God, then he is of different substance to God. When you or I create something, whether it's Christmas cookies or a carving from wood or otherwise, we create something that is other from us. When I'm building something or when you're baking something or whatever it is, you're making something else. We produce something that's unique from us. But for the parents in the room and the family members in the room, we know that our children are different. They are of us. They come from us. Jesus, as the Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, means he is of the same essence of the Father. He is not... God creating something else that is new and different. And the human metaphors obviously break down at some point because nothing and no one has ever existed like God. There is nothing we can compare it to and we can try to make this make sense in our head all that we want, but eventually it all starts to break down. And the concept of the Trinity three in one is a paradox that is clearly attested to throughout Scripture, but also clearly beyond our ability to totally wrap our mind around. I've had the opportunity a couple times in the last couple months to bring up the Trinity with our youth group. And the, you can see the question mark bubbles forming above their heads as I'm talking about it. And I've got to say, I'm, I'm not a whole lot different. We have... 
the truth in Scripture that God is three and God is one, but we can't go a whole lot further than that before we start getting ourselves into trouble. But if Jesus were a mere creation of God, imbued with some special gift or status, then he is not worthy of our worship. Here are two passages from the Old Testament about the worship of God. Deuteronomy 6, 4-5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. In Exodus 23-4, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. To worship any who is not God is an atrocious thing. He is the only one worthy of our worship. But to accept worship if you are not God is just as bad, if not worse. Jesus willingly and gladly accepts worship more than once throughout the Gospels. He affirms his own worthiness to receive worship. One such occasion was after walking on the water and pulling Peter from the waves. Peter cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Jesus Christ, our Savior, is indeed the Son of God. He is the second member of the triune Godhead, and based on that fact, he is worthy of worship. In our passage this morning, Mark wants us to understand without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is indeed deserving of our worship as he is the true Son of God. To connect this with the message I preached last week on Jesus as the Son of David and the Son of Abraham, the Messiah no doubt was meant to be seen as these things, Son of David. But Jesus reminds the Pharisees in Matthew 22 that that was just the tip of the iceberg. He says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? He said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. Who is it that David, the great superstar of the Israelite nation, who would he call Lord, especially one who is descended from him, which the Israelite people would say, The one that came first is probably the the most important. Most certainly he would call the Son of God Lord. Hopefully you can see how our worship of Christ hinges on his sonship. 
But I also want to point out that the whole of our salvation does as well. Jesus being incarnated upon this earth as God's Son is key. Galatians 4, 4 4-5, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God sent His own Son. This is our big celebration at Christmas. God's own Son made flesh. But the story of Christmas, just viewed by itself, has very little lasting impact on the world. It would be just the story of any other deity made incarnate. And I'm, I'm thinking here of these ancient Greeks and Romans. I know many of us have been fascinated throughout our childhood and up into adulthood of the, the myths of the Greek gods and Roman gods and the heroes and all that kind of stuff. And these stories of these gods walking among men doing great feats of numerous kinds, they were, they're interesting tales, and even if they had been true, they would have been great importance to the people who were there and experienced them. But ultimately, would have been insignificant in the long run. Christmas, in particular, takes on its meaning when the earthly exploits of Christ are viewed holistically. What happened? The stories of gods on earth are as numerous as they are useless. But the gospel isn't just God-made flesh, as amazing as that is. It's the true account of the God-made flesh born under the law, fulfilling covenants, living a perfect life, giving up his own life as the sacrificial lamb on whom the sins of the whole world would be laid. For our sake, he made his own son to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5. And even then, the story isn't done. Without that final act, we're just left with another deluded man who claimed to be God. But the final act is God's seal on the truthfulness of all Christ claimed in life. From 1 Corinthians 15, how can you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true, that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. The whole of the Christian faith is wrapped up in whether or not Christ was indeed the Son of God. When Mark opens his gospel this way, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 
he is laying down a fundamental truth. In 1 John 5, 12, we read, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who has not the Son has not life. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. No Jesus Christ, the Son of God. No reconciliation with God. No saving from sins and no hope. Christmas is all about hope. And if Jesus is not the Son of God, then we're fooling ourselves. Each one of us has fallen short of the glorious standard from God. But God the Son came and being born as a man under the law, fulfilled that standard perfectly. Then as the Son of God, he was able to make a sacrifice of infinite value to cover the transgressions of all who would come to him. By substituting his perfect righteousness for our wretched sinfulness and taking that penalty we deserve in our sinfulness, our Savior made it possible for each of his chosen people to come to the Father through himself. I'll say again what I said last week. This time of year celebrating the birth of Christ gives us as believers so much opportunity to give the reason why we celebrate. That's why I have no problem preaching this Christmas series that, to be honest, says a lot of the same things. Because I want, it to, want us to have it through our heads and through all of our hearts, at, particularly at Christmas, where we know exactly what to say to our friends and coworkers and whatever. Be like, why is Christmas such a big deal to you? And Christmas is not just a big deal because God came to earth. Not, that's just a narrow part of it. The truth is that in the incarnation, God set about reconciling all of his people to himself through his Son. I mean, John 3.16 is great. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That is the story of Christmas and of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So as God gives you opportunities this Christmas season, please take the time to share the fullness of the hope that you have at Christmas and throughout the year. And going forward, don't lose sight in your own heart of the importance in recognizing your own heart and your own life in your own reading of Scripture of Jesus as the Son of God. Day in and day out, Christ, the Son of God, can serve as motivation for your regular worship. Why do you live a Christian life the way that you do? Because your Savior is God. Not only has he done things worthy of worship, he is also in nature worthy of worship as the Son of God. And that's important because if you only worship Christ because of what he has done, particularly for you, then when he, in your eyes, doesn't seem to be doing what you think he should be doing, when you look at your own life and you see, I don't like what 
this whole Jesus thing is doing in my life, then your heart's going to be tempted to go elsewhere. If your worship of Christ is just because of what he has done and is doing in your life, but if you recognize him being in nature worthy of worship, then regardless of your opinion of him in the moment, then you will continue to worship in spite of the circumstances that you don't understand and aren't even necessarily okay in your head. This is particularly helpful when we look at the, the moments in our life that are beyond painful, beyond difficult. If your worship of your God is on what your God has done for you, then when your God isn't doing nice things for you in your experience, you're going to say, I'm done with this. This isn't getting me where I want to go. But if your worship of God is based on who he is and the fact that whether you like him or don't like him, he is worthy of worship, it completely changes the, the framework. Whether I like my kids or not on a given day, I will always love my kids because they are my kids, because of that, that is my relationship with them. I will always love them. And I will always love my God because he is my God and is deserving of my, deserving of my love and my worship, whether or not I like what he's doing. Don't think for a second that this stuff that we talk about around Christmas, the incarnation, Jesus as the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of God, etc. Don't think it's only useful at Christmas time. Christmas time just is a great time to remind us of these truths. If you don't regularly ground yourself in these truths that are so foundational at Christmas but throughout the year, then your whole faith ends up on shaky foundations. Praise God that his gospel applies yesterday, today, tomorrow, at Christmas, and for all eternity. Would you pray with me? Our God and our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ knowing that without him we have no opportunity to do so. We have no right to come before you on our own merit. We are wicked and we are broken and we are sinful. But you sent your son to reconcile us to yourself and to bring yourself glory. And you have caused those things to happen. You are glorified in the work of your Son. You are glorified to call to yourself any and all whom you have chosen. And Lord, may we as believers be faithful in our knowledge and our sharing of your gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Open doors and opportunities and give us boldness to speak your truth wherever we go. 
And as we worship together here in this building, may our conversations build each other up in our ability to do so. May the word as it is preached from this pulpit equip those who come here to this church to go out and to take your gospel to the ends of the earth. And Lord, if there are any who have heard this message that have not yet surrendered their hearts totally and fully to you, may you work by your Holy Spirit to reveal to them the truth. For we know that without this work, the gospel is folly to those who are perishing. So cause these words to work in a way that they might come to know you. They might confess Christ as their Lord and Savior and believe in their hearts that you have done amazing things in raising him from the dead. And Lord, may we, as brothers and sisters, absolutely enjoy the celebration that we get to have around Christmas time. May we relish the families that you've given us, the food that you've given us, the resources you've given us to give each other gifts. All of these things are amazing. But may all of them turn our eyes towards you. May all of them turn our hearts towards the truth of your gospel. And Lord, as we go from this place, we ask that you would keep us safe, watch over us, and in your will. We ask that you would bring us back here on Friday night to continue to worship together. These things in Jesus' name. Amen.